What does it mean to be called crazy in a crazy world? Listen to Madness Radio, voices and visions from outside mental health. Sponsored by peer-run support communities, Freedom Center, The Icarus Project, and Portland Hearing Voices. Madness Radio can be heard on FM stations on the Pacifica Radio Network and is online at kboo.fm slash madnessradio. Welcome to Madness Radio. This is your host, Will Hall. Today, my guest is Jax McNamara. Jax is a genderqueer writer and artist and healer based in the Bay Area. Jax co-founded The Icarus Project and is the subject of the documentary film Crooked Beauty. Jax has just published a new book of poetry, In Between Land. So welcome to Madness Radio, Jax McNamara. Thanks so much, Will. I'm really glad to be here. It's great to have you on the show. This is actually the second interview that I did with you. Uh, We did an interview, I guess, about eight years ago, was it? Yeah, eight years ago. <laughs> when More when the Icarus Project was sort of just getting started, and now Icarus has celebrated its 10th anniversary. You and Sasha DeBrule, the, the co-founder of Icarus, are going to be touring to celebrate that 10th anniversary and, and your book release, right? Indeed, we're taking both of our new solo books and a reissue of Navigating the Space Between Brilliance and Madness on the road for a month this spring. And tell us a little bit about the Icarus Project. I like to talk about the Icarus Project as a collaborative adventure in mutual aid. Started the project for people living with the conditions that are usually called psychiatric diagnoses. Looking at those conditions as sort of dangerous gifts to be taken care of and cultivated instead of looking at them as diseases and disorders that need to be cured. And so at this point, the project is many things. It's a many-headed hydra. There's an online community with thousands and thousands of members talking to each other about all kinds of things and posting articles and art galleries on the Icarus website. And then there are local support groups all over the world, as far-flung as Argentina and Arkansas, all over the place. And then we also put out a number of alternative publications, one of which is your harm reduction guide to coming off psych drugs, which the Icarus Project co-publishes. And then we have a few other publications that are getting translated into all kinds of languages. It's, it's pretty exciting these days. And I should say that this is one of the things that really attracted me to getting involved and being, becoming an organizer with the Icarus Project is the emphasis on creativity and the positive side. And so if people haven't seen the absolutely gorgeous website that you designed, theicarusproject.net, they should definitely check that out. And your sort of artistic visionary leadership has been a big part of developing that community. And tell us about the, the new book of poetry that you've just released. So the book of poetry is called In Between Land. It sort of chronicles a period of my life over the last, gosh, I guess almost seven years now since my mother died. And I didn't start it intending it that way. It was just lots and lots of poems I was writing. And then after self-publishing some of them and performing a lot, I got invited by a brand new press called Deviant Type, which is a radical publishing collective. They called me up one day on the phone and asked if I'd be willing to publish a book with them, which is sort of every writer's dream to not have to to submit anything and then have someone just call you up one day. So I said yes. And then I've spent the last year and a half working on bringing this book together and really finding mm. the shape of what what it's trying to talk about, which is really about transformation and healing. And Jax, how did all this get started? How did you first get engaged with mental health issues from your own personal story? And then what has been the role of art and creativity in your own process of transformation around that? So I grew up in Virginia, um, I'm adopted, and I grew up with a family that meant well, but did me a lot of harm. And I had a lot of, quote, mental health issues from a young age. I was a very volatile, intense, depressive, elated, creative, brilliant, 
devastated child, teenager, adult. I mean, the way I formally got involved in the mental health system was when I was 19, and I had had a few months where I was certain that I'd figured out how to save the world, quite literally, through teaching everybody about the interconnections of the carbon in their bodies that came from exploded supernovas, and somehow if I taught everybody about this, it was going to end racism, classism, and poverty. Goals which you have not necessarily given up at this point, though, right? Yeah, no, I'd love to see that happen. I just don't think I'm going to do it single-handedly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's part of why the Icarus Project is there and other grassroots activism. We need a lot of people working on these things. Yeah, the isolation is often the key thing that gets us into trouble. The visions are, are great. It's just when we're alone with them. So, Right, and learning to get along with other human beings. What was it that got you to that point of having this incredible, I'm going to save the world single-handedly vision or, or drive or passion that you had that got you, that got you locked up? It's an interesting question. I mean, there are a lot of ways to answer it. You know, I think one is that I've just always had an acute sensitivity to injustice. And, you know, I've just never been a person with a lot of filters who can block out both the beautiful and the terrible aspects of the world, you know, from the age of being a young kid. I mean, I remember when I would see my mom saying racist things or see bad things happen on television, like I needed to call them out. I needed to talk about them. I needed to figure out how we could end them. So one was just this acute sensitivity and then a really creative mind that wanted to problem solve. At what point did that really become an extreme state that got you into being locked up? I think a lot of it had to do with drugs and alcohol. In the six months before I got locked up, I had been, I dropped out of college and I was traveling around the world and doing a lot of different drugs and drinking a lot. And, you know, I was kind of thinking that I was like a queer American Jack Kerouac taking on Europe and Egypt. You know, it was a wild ride. While I was there, I ended up getting fired from a number of jobs and then working at a chicken factory and just having experiences where I really saw sort of the underbelly of capitalism. Working in a chicken chicken factory, <laughs> like a factory farm of chickens? No, a factory that packs chickens. At one point, I ended up, yeah, living in a trailer park on a farm for temporary workers and getting sent out to factories as a temp worker, one of which was a chicken factory, which was a seminal experience in my life in terms of overwhelming my system and really committing me to be an anti-capitalist. It definitely seems like a significant stressor for contributing to an extreme state. Yeah, hardcore. So when I got back from that trip, I was pretty opened up in all kinds of ways, pretty overwhelmed in all kinds of ways. I just climbed Mount Sinai. Like I'd just done all these incredible things and it was kind of more than my system could hold together, combined with a lot of just trauma in my background. And I feel like it all finally erupted into what started out, you know, the extreme states started out amazingly. I mean, I really thought I'd figured out the key to human salvation, you know, but when, when the wheels came off, the wheels came off. And when everything started to fall apart and degenerate, it was just a horrible black mess of chaos and nasty inner voices and not being able to function in consensus reality at all. Um, and I ended up in the psych ward. Was sleep deprivation a part of this mix of trauma and stress and all the different things that you were going through at that point? I'm just curious because I always ask that to people and I, I often see that pattern. It's interesting because that particular time, the sleep deprivation wasn't bad before I ended up in the hospital, but in the preceding six months of traveling, my sleep was incredibly messed up. Yeah. Since then, sleep deprivation is always a big issue for me when I get into big crisis places. And so you said that trauma was part of this mix as well. What, what kinds of trauma do you mean? Or how is it that that played a role? 
Well, you know, it's interesting. There were types of trauma I knew about and types of trauma I didn't that end up coming up in my book. I was raised in a really alcoholic family, a really raging, unsafe, neglectful, I hate to overuse the word crazy, but yeah, a very chaotic, turbulent family. And I held a lot of unresolved pain and isolation from that. I'm also adopted, which I didn't think contributed in any way to my life problems. I was always told that being adopted doesn't make a difference. But um, I've come to realize later that it makes a huge difference, you know, that I was given away at birth to strangers. And then in the last six or seven years of my life, the time period that I chronicle in this book, I've had a lot of memories of childhood sexual abuse and other sexual assault resurface in my life, including during that trip I was talking about when I was in Europe and in Egypt. I was actually assaulted in Egypt, which I completely blocked from my memory for six years. So these experiences really you know, drove your creativity, and they also drove your uh, becoming a healer, because I, I know that you're now um, practicing as someone who does somatics, generative somatics healing work with people, which is a very sophisticated, body-oriented way of addressing trauma. And we actually interviewed Stacey Haynes talking about this for people who are interested in this. And, uh, yeah, it's definitely one of the things that's led me there. You know, uh, it's something that we talk about a lot in Icarus is the archetype of the wounded healer. And that it's through walking through the fire yourself that you end up knowing how to help other people walk through it. You know, and I definitely, a lot of my work in the world, whether it's my writing, whether it's my art, whether it's now doing direct healing work has been motivated by trying to help people in ways that there was no one to help me, trying to fill the voids that I saw, to write the book that I needed that wasn't there when I was 15, or provide the kinds of like radical trauma-informed healing practice that I was not able to access when I was 19, you know, that kind of thing. Well, this was what struck me so, so strongly when I first encountered the Icarus Project, was the really vivid evocation of this poetic image, both of the negative and the positive side of these experiences that we call madness or extreme states and this idea of the wounded healer captures that really perfectly that we go through trauma we go through madness we may end up with a disorder diagnosis we may end up in hospitals but there's also something incredibly beautiful and incredible potential within that and Icarus just really you guys really went for it and created leadership around that. And that's what inspired me to get involved. And I think that's why it's taken off. It's such a completely different kind of message than what we usually get from the mental health system. Yeah, for sure. Sasha and I both were pretty indoctrinated in the message that we were broken, that it you know, was this lifelong, but you know, the message, you talk about it all the time on Madness Radio. And it was such a depressing, hopeless idea to see ourselves as lifelong mental patients. So how did you go from, you know, finally ending up in that hospital to turning it around and moving beyond those messages that you were given? Oh, it's been a long path. I mean, a lot of it had to do with meeting Sasha and starting Icarus and just finding someone else out there who had similar life experiences, not just in terms of the quote madness, but in terms of being adventurous and having a big spirit and writing and making art and being creative and meeting people and just sort of Sometimes I feel like the folks who get diagnosed bipolar, we have an oversized appetite for life. Like our appetite for life is bigger than what consensus reality can permit us. And so we run into these obstacles where we want to, you know, like I used to be really into the book Be Here Now by Ram Dass. And he has this great page where he's like, part of how you end up in psychosis is that you try to run through the doorway of heaven, but you still have your ego on. And it's like, there's this hunger to just run right through the door of heaven but i still have my ego on i haven't like learned all the tools to 
fully be grounded all the time and be in a place where I know myself well enough to transcend myself. And for people who don't know the story of Icarus, tell us that story and what it means to you. So Icarus was, in ancient Greek mythology, a boy who was trapped in a maze with his father, Daedalus, and his father was an inventor. And he decided that he was going to make wings out of wax and feathers so Icarus could fly out of the maze and get free. But he warned Icarus not to fly too close to the sun because if he did, his wings would melt and he would crash into the ocean and die. But Icarus was really intoxicated with his new power. And so as soon as he got flying out there with his wings, he flew too close to the sun and they melted and he crashed. And one of the reasons we chose this metaphor for the Icarus project was... A, the idea that not everybody gets to have wings necessarily. And if you have wings, how do you learn to take care of them with other people? Is there a way that rather than squashing ourselves into the box of having a disorder, is there a way that we can say, hmm, we have these beautiful, tricky, dangerous wings to use. Can we come together as a community and learn how to use them together so we don't crash over and over? Yeah, it's such a beautiful image, the idea of navigating the space between brilliance and madness that it's all about altitude and learning things and maybe even learning things from our, our parents or learning things from common sense of people who maybe we tend to want to just reject the insights that you know psychiatrists even might have but actually there are some valuable things that come from you know listening to words of caution when we're uh, dealing with these really really powerful forces so actually there's a poem i was going to read to you that features is something i've always talked about since we started those first Icarus workshops is this idea of keeping one foot in both worlds. Like when we started the project, we were pretty down on the world of consensus reality. Like if we could have had it, we would have just lived in the sky all the time. Part of navigating the space and continuing to be alive on this earth is becoming willing to have one foot in grounded reality, to be able to navigate things like taxes and traffic and family relationships and to be able to navigate the world of spirit and electricity and ideas and passion and really to see them both as like two feet walking, you know, two sides of the same coin that you can't just get rid of one side. You actually have to learn how to be in both or you're not going to stick around. So will you read one of the poems from your, from your new book? From, this is from your new book, In Between Land. Yes, and I'm actually going to read from the title poem, In Between Land. It's quite a long poem, so I'm just going to excerpt a few sections. In Between Land. I wish someone had told me I would get out of the burning house, or that I had already escaped a long time ago, and it lived on only in my muscles and my mind. I wish someone had handed me the word survivor, placed it in my palms like a blossom or a drill, told me to build altars and hang hinges carefully. I wish they had told me I could stand up any time open the door, leave. My best friend and I used to talk about choosing earth and sky. We traveled between borders leading workshops for survivors who had known rocks that whisper, billboards who shout conspiracies and cosmic truths, electric hearts impaled on apocalypse sunsets over ruined cities and paper mountains speaking myths that evaporate like water off hot pavement when you finally come down into the world of toothpaste and toilet paper, fathers and sons, appointments, diagnoses, mania, psychosis, but we knew we were caught trying to fly out of mazes built by kings and corporations, where your wings melt once you finally make it over the sea. 
When we mentioned keeping one foot in both worlds, everyone in the room would exhale, eyes like fireflies switching on at dusk. Permission. This too is real. In between land. Both. You don't have to choose between sanity and the roofless night. It's 2012 and I am lying on the floor of a small room while a therapist in a black muscle tee emblazoned with hope in white letters draws infinity symbols above my eyes. I follow her fingers and I freeze as usual until the images come. The shadow shapes of men, my father leaning over, thick stories, heat, suddenly, the impulse to roll onto my side, stand up, open the door, leave. For the first time, I do. Outside the world is big as snow, bright as a waxing moon, full of people. My hands are full of tools, my eyes full of horizon. I am enormous, a child landing in an adult's miraculous skin. Such a powerful image of somehow balancing both and having a foot in both worlds and not being swept up in madness, but also not being trapped in being in the prison either, that there's something right about the impulse of wanting to get away from just ordinary reality. It really resonates with me. And and um, one of the things that you talk about a lot in your in your poetry, Jax, is being queer and, and identifying and experiencing the world in a way very different than people around us do. And, and um, that's something that I think, you know, played a big role in my own trauma, being targeted for my own sexuality and also that, that sense of not fitting in. And where, where am I? If I'm not in the straight world and not in the gay world, then where, where, where am I? And, and tell us something about your own development of that identity and that sense of yourself and really embracing your sexuality and your gender and all of its complexity and its, its richness. There's so much to say. I mean, it's interesting. So when you knew me, I was still sort of bouncing back and forth between kind of trying to be straight very unsuccessfully and then being in queer relationships and then kind of freaking out. And I was not in a place of acceptance around my own gender identity and my own queerness. You're in my poem, a poem telling me that I've always had a third gender energy. I don't actually know this poem, so please read it. Third gender. One. I remember when I turned my last skirt into a tablecloth because I only wanted to be one gender now and it was not girl. I remember when everything changed, I turned the tablecloth back into a skirt. Two, the red purse was the last present my mother ever gave me. I hid it under the bed and then I got sober and she went into a coma. It was easier to look like a girl when I went back to Virginia. The neighbors liked me with long hair. The purse was actually pretty and had good pockets. I carried it to the hospital every day. Three. When I was 17, I wrote a short story about castrating cucumbers. After cars of drunk men threw packs of playing cards at me, queen of hearts, ace of spades, they swerved directly at me, 2 a.m., screamed at my tits. When I cut all my hair off two days later, I felt hideous and proud, properly gay and partly invisible. No one screaming now but my mom. Four. 
They called me Sinead O'Connor. They called me G.I. Jane. They called me crazy and called me Sir when I shaved my head in a foreign country. Small children asked if I was a boy or a girl. The men shouted out shop windows to ask where my hair was. Finally, I gave up and told them I sold it to buy my plane ticket home. They stopped asking me why I wasn't married. They stopped asking me anything at all. Five. We had gone to my mother's favorite restaurant and drunk enough wine to be pleasant. We were supposed to be celebrating something. When we got home, she burst into tears all over the kitchen counter. All she was thinking at dinner that night was she hoped. Everyone thought I'd had chemotherapy, and that's why I had no hair. Six. He told me I'd always had a lot of third gender energy, before I knew what that meant. He thought it was a compliment. I thought I was an alien. I don't remember another word he said. I remember going home, putting on a black dress, and trying to be beautiful. Seven. Now my lover tells me I am handsome, and she tells me I am pretty. Sometimes I open my ribs for her. I bought a black tuxedo vest on eBay. It has one rhinestone button. I will wear it. She will wear a short skirt and a flower in her hair. She calls me her ex-boyfriend and she calls me a zebra. She squeals when she discovers my underwear is still covered in hearts. Beautiful. And I think in terms of the world starting to really move beyond the straight and gender binary either or and the oppression of something that's not in line, with the mainstream, there is a recognition that, look, being different, being unusual, being part of a, of a sexuality or a gender identity that isn't the mainstream, it doesn't mean that you're more, have more problems or you're more sick or more neurotic or anything like that. That's the sort of the old story that we've been told and we're beyond that now. And at the same time, I'm really curious what, what your sense is, what is the relationship between being queer and madness? The answer is it depends. It depends on a person's life experience. You know, there are people these days, some, who grow up with really nice, loving, liberal families who accept them however they are and grow up in really nice, progressive communities where it's fine to be a gender-variant child. And then they probably still experience a lot of oppression out in the world, a lot of transphobia and, you know, homophobia, but that's getting better depending where you live. But it really depends, you know? I mean, most of the folks I know who are queer, who have mental health issues, you know, part of it, it's not because queer gives anyone a mental health issue, it's because being queer in this world and the things you deal with might pile a lot of trauma on your plate. You know, I dealt with a lot of homophobia and sort of trans or gender phobia stuff from family out in the world. You know, that trip I was talking about before I got locked up the first time, that's the stanza of the poem where I talk about shaving my head in a foreign mm -hmm. country. And everywhere I went, it was just like getting yelled at and asked if I was a boy or a girl, getting things thrown at me, just like lots and lots and lots of harassment, you know, and always being very, very vigilant, like always knowing that you probably weren't safe, always trying to have your back covered, always being aware of who might come at you, whether or not it was safe to talk about who you were in a relationship with, whether or not it was safe to walk down the street, whether you had to pretend to be you know it wasn't like I could rest in the world if I looked gender variant so I think that those those legacies of dealing with just like harassment abuse and oppression yeah they've had a big effect on my mental health and then also like just trying to find a place to belong 
just trying to find my experiences reflected. You know, I came of age as a queer person in rural Maryland. I tried to start a gay-straight alliance at my high school and was told that I couldn't do it because people would pull their kids out of the school. You know, so there was no Ellen. <laughs> there was no famous gay person to look at or non-famous gay person. It was just completely closeted and terrifying. And you thought everybody was going to kick you out, which partly happened to me if you came out as being queer. And this has been a big message of the Icarus Project of just finding each other and being able to make that community happen. And the, the internet, of course, makes it easier in some ways. I mean, it presents its own challenges. And I also think that's been a big theme of the Icarus Project's work has been pointing to oppression as itself something that causes psychosis, madness, extreme states, whatever you want to call it, that this that trauma isn't just something that happens individually or in the families, but it also needs to be understood as a social, institutional, historical force. And, and that's really crucial. And at the same time, there's something very powerful about queerness and about moving be between genders and moving beyond genders and the ways in which the healers and the shamans and the medicine people in tradition, cu traditional cultures are often the ones that are themselves transgressing genders. And there's something very sort of magical about that quality of being able to go beyond the, the, the thing that you've been given. And I think that there's, it's not a, a surprise to me that there's so many queer people who are also healers who are also interested in magic and interested in shamanism and connecting with that power that trauma can have to unleash our gifts. It opens you up to a lot of different sides of human experience. I'll talk about something that forces you to move between worlds. <laughs> if you're just tuning in, this is Madness Radio. Today my guest is Jax McNamara. Jax is a genderqueer writer and artist and healer based in the Bay Area. Jax co-founded The Icarus Project and is the subject of the documentary film Crooked Beauty. Jax has just published a new book of poetry, In Between Land. And Jax, is this also part of why you chose the, the title In Between Land? Well, you know, In Between Land kind of chose me. It's actually, it's funny. It's something I started writing about very shortly after you made that comment to me about the third gender energy. And I just started chewing on in my life what it's like to be someone who walks between worlds. And then when I was choosing between different potential titles for the book, eventually I came back to that, you know, seven years later and was like, that's it. That's the title. Like, this is where I live is this in-between world. And as much as I try to pick a side to be in and say, this is my side, there isn't a side, there isn't a box or a category that fits. And so how do we learn to just live in in-between land? And I mean, it's still an ongoing struggle for me daily, but, but yeah, that's kind of where I think I am and where a lot of power is, you know? This culture has a lot of boxes I don't want to fit into. Okay, so this poem is called So Many Ways to Be Beautiful. This is a story about when your mom died and a boy loved you and a boy left you and a girl loved you and you left her and your dad left too. This is a story about the neighborhood with singed wings and pride like a barbecue smoking out back. This is a story about not giving up over and over again. This is a story about believing you have a broken heart, not a mental illness. This is a story about the ache you come home to every night, learn to hold in your arms like the child you once were, even though no one held you in their arms back then. This is a story about becoming capable of leaving enough space between words that someone else can read your story too. 
This is a story about learning to cook squash, cut hair, connect pipes, drive stick, mix flesh tones, lay down loops, fix your brakes, grill garlic, get consent, and take no prisoners. This is a story about bleeding a poem, wearing a cock, making a skirt, hiding your shame, knotting a tie, and using the heel of your boots to bring her home. This is a story about the end times and the way they become the beginning if you survive the empty hours, the end of June, pull your mother's ring off the shelf where it slept with a lock of her hair since the moon went black and light a candle, know you were loved, pull a song from your throat and a stone from his lungs, remember you are stronger than all the nightmares, ghosts, and police. This is the shape of almost, but not quite, home. Okay, a perfect, horrible city where brown boys get shot by white cops, where white girls cry while helicopters fly over and over the backyard, where babies are still learning to walk and the fog always cancels July. Shape of sound, shape of sky, shape of too many names for nowhere and nowhere left to hide, city of potholes, city of angels, city of passion flowers, salt and song, what if? What if we finished what we started? What if we brought the pigs down? What if we wrote the books that no one else is writing about the lives we are still living, the bodies we are still loving, the signals we are crossing, the men at the border, the women on the street, the people with mismatched pronouns and fucked up hair, the people with bound breasts, pink heels, striped pants, gender dysphoria, and so many ways to be beautiful that only the school children can find the names? What if? What if we brought our gospel home? What if? Wow. I love the line, you have a broken heart, not a mental illness. What an incredible image. Thanks. And what's the story of that poem? How did that emerge? Well, that poem emerged in a way that a lot of my poems start interestingly. So I'm also a visual artist. And um, I was sitting down to paint one day. And most of my paintings have some text in them. And I'm, you know, drawing and painting and then I start just sort of writing down the things that I'm thinking and they start spilling out of me and they turned into that poem. I just filled this entire painting <laughs> with all the words that later turned into that poem. And I often find that when I start making art, the poems spill out. Like my poems tend to spill out sideways. I don't sit down and say, I'm going to write a poem about gender. They totally come out of my dreaming, my unconscious, all the things that I've been collecting throughout my days and weeks, all the notes I've made in my journal about pigeons in the alley or, you know, raindrops on the window, whatever it is, they sort of, everything collects. And then it, when it's the right time, it's kind of like it all squirts out diagonal across a page and a first draft of a poem appears. And it's usually something I had no idea I was going to write about. And does that impulse, that source or that inspiration that makes that art come forward, that poetry come forward, is it the same impulse, do you think, that can take us too far and that leads us into madness? Definitely related. I don't know if there's like one, you know, or the other to be all in between land on you, but hmm. definitely they are very closely related to each other, you know, and in the middle of writing this book, I lost my mind again. I ended up locked up in a psych ward last summer, which I could not believe after 13 years. What happened? Maybe I should say what was going on in, in between land and also not going on in in between land. You know, so I'd been working on this book, which brought up a ton of intense material and required me to be, you know, alone with my tortured, tempestuous, beautiful muse. That doesn't lead to the most mental stability that anyone's ever seen. 
I developed RSI, repetitive strain injury, in my wrists and my hands and my arms and my back and my neck horribly, horribly. And before I ended up having the crisis last summer, like I'd had to quit work completely. I'd been dealing with it for a year and a half and hadn't found anything that made it better for more than a couple weeks. Chronic illness and chronic pain can really do your head in. You know, when it was really bad, I couldn't read because it hurt to hold books up. I couldn't send text messages. I couldn't drive my car. I couldn't do my dishes. I couldn't use the computer. I was working as a graphic designer, an editor, and a gardener. I couldn't do any of those things. And so it was like the whole structure of my life fell apart. And then I also had some really intense relationship turbulence. What was it that helped you get out of that? space of so much pain and extreme state and being back in the psychiatric hospital to where to where you are now with publishing the book and touring and doing the work that you do a number of things one of them honestly is medication i went through the horrible rigmarole of trying a bunch of different meds over the years i've become way more sensitive to side effects and i can't take the things that used to be helpful but we finally found something I'd never tried that worked incredibly well. Once it kicked in, it was like the negative black voice, hysteria, suicidal despair. It just stopped. And it wasn't like my life was fabulous. And what was that medication? Trileptal. It's an anticonvulsant. It's one that's pretty experimental with bipolar. It's not super well studied. It's one of the reasons I'd never tried it. But I have pretty much no side effects, and it's been super helpful. And it wasn't like I took it and then, woof, my life is fabulous. It was like I took it, and then I could think again clearly enough to see the steps I would need to take to put my life back in order. When my head started to clear, I was able to leave the relationship. I was able to realize, with the help of a social worker actually at Kaiser, who was like, you need to be a very squeaky wheel and get medical help for your wrists and your hands that works better because this is ridiculous. And so I went into really intensive physical therapy and just focused on my health, on rebuilding my back and my body. I lost like 20 pounds in the last two years. You know me, I don't need to lose 20 pounds. So I really had to get back to a place where I could eat again. And once I started the medication, I had an appetite for the first time in two years. I think this is really related to that image of in-between land, that if we're either or, either meds bad or meds good, then we miss the reality of the situation is that often it's not an either or, that you know you may feel like, oh, I wish I wasn't on meds, I wish I wasn't on meds, but if you find that they're useful for you, and that's what makes the bridge to get out from where you are to where you want to be, then absolutely, that's the useful tool that you find. I think often people get get stuck in that either or consciousness that just you know doesn't work in either direction so totally and i do i mean i'd much rather not be on them long term you know my life goal at this point well i had this whole plan where by the time i was 32 i was going to be off meds i was going to have been off them for a couple years i was going to have a partner and be getting ready to think about having kids in the next couple years and be ready to be pregnant and i was going to be off my meds so it would be safe for me to be pregnant that was the plan you know, and I worked very hard on that plan. You know, I went to acupuncture. I did all kinds of alternative healing. I thought I'd found the right partner. Like, it didn't work. So I'm trying to see the gifts now in my life going another direction. You know, I was able to go away for the winter and finish this book, which is an incredible feeling. I can't even tell you. I was jumping up and down yesterday after I got it back from the printer, grinning for like, well, basically until now for the last like 14 hours. You know, and I've been able to 
take these steps to put my life back together to get my health back in order and you know look towards what am I going to do next instead of the place I was trapped in last summer which was I have no options there are no more options I've tried everything and there are no more options yeah, in between land doesn't really work well with with linear plans and and expectations. The flexibility is so important, and I often think in the Icarus story, you know, there is this wisdom of getting cautioned by the parental figure, the father figure, the you know the the mainstream voice sometimes has some really important things to offer us, and we need to not be in one world or the other. We need to be somehow in both worlds and taking the wisdom and taking the tools and taking the practical solutions where where we find them with a flexible point of view rather than being anti-medications. Like, I still think that if there was a beautiful med-free sanctuary I could have gone to, for example, if I had a sugar mama in the sky to foot my bills after I got out so I didn't have to work for six months, I didn't have to worry about keeping down a job, paying my rent, keeping my life together. Like, I don't think that going on the meds is like a necessity, but in this world, that's the piece for me. I'm in this world. I wish I was in the world I want to be, where someone would put me up, feed me organic food, take me hiking, and I'd have a great Jungian-inspired psychotherapist with somatics background to help me spend two years working out the existential dilemmas that underlie my madness. I wish that was there. It's not. I don't have the resources to create it. Like I need to keep functioning in consensus reality. No one's going to pick me up and carry me. And for me, that's a lot of the meds come in as like the tool that currently exists to give me some filters and to give me some stability so I can put one foot in front of the other. Yeah, I ask myself that question quite a lot. Like if you did have the absolutely ideal circumstances, would there be absolutely no need for something like medications or something like confinement? You know, and we can't know the answer. We Maybe we can't. And, and one of the things that we can look at is historically, like if you look at all these different cultures around the world, there's something about madness that doesn't seem to want to go away and it never wants to be controlled and never wants to be understood. There's always been wild people who've been, even in ideal, if we romanticize indigenous cultures, even we say, well, they had a place, they were recognized, sometimes not. Sometimes they just killed them. You know, sometimes they just drove them out. And sometimes people just wandered or did whatever it is they did and ended up having a terrible, terrible, tragic uh, outcome. And so even the, even the folks in Finland who are doing this really innovative work, even the research that Robert Whitaker has you know, unearthed, even the, the Soteria people, there's still all kinds of times that they encounter someone or some situation they have just no idea how to deal with it it's deep and i mean i think some of this stuff is like intergenerational and you know i think it comes from way back like i think i carry some trauma that is not my own i was born to a woman who knew she had to give me away the entire time i was in her womb she knew she was going to give me away she was unemployed she was stressed out her super christian parents were pressuring her to get rid of a child that she didn't mean to have you know, and then here I come into the world and like I deal with a lot of depression. I deal with a lot of feeling like I don't belong on this planet. I deal with a lot of anxiety about work and money. And I come from a family where biologically, so my biological dad found me when I was 21. He's diagnosed bipolar. His brother was diagnosed schizophrenic. I have multiple other family members who I won't name for their confidentiality and privacy who've also been diagnosed bipolar, like all in my biological family. And I never met them until I was 21. It's not like they raised and imparted into me a bunch of behaviors through the environment I was in. You know, and I don't know what to make of that. Like I've sort of developed a complex idea of inheritance, like what it means for 
madness to be inherited, quote unquote. I think it means a lot of things. Did your adoptive family, did they know your birth family? No, it was a totally closed adoption. I knew nothing about my biological family except I had one sheet of paper that said my dad was a tennis pro and my mom was 22 and it told me how tall they were and their hair color. That was all I knew. So whether that's the artist gene or the creative gene or the madness gene, I don't know if we're ever going to be able to figure that right, out. Right, you know, and they're all really creative people. Like they're also all creative, beautiful, fascinating, turbulent, smart people, you know. That was something that John Weir Perry, the Jungian, said. He said if they did find a gene for schizophrenia, it would be the gene for creativity. And then we start to think about, well, what about you know epigenetics and genes being turned on and turned off? And even if there is some inheritance, maybe it's not a blueprint that locks us into a into a destiny. And even if you're sensitive to the eugenics of it and the way that genes have been used as an argument to make people powerless and feel like they can't do anything and they just have to surrender for their fate, even if you do recognize all that, you know, maybe we should be open to it. there's something mysterious going on here and there's a lot of unknowns. And this is a very uncanny coincidence that if it's just a coincidence, a very uncanny coincidence that you've discovered from your own biological family. Like part of how I find it useful to think about it is um, I think about it as inheriting a certain pattern of stress response, that if certain kinds of stress happen, I am likely to respond to that stress through, for instance, getting manic and getting depressed. Other people inherit a pattern of stress response where they might develop breast cancer, and so did their mom, and so did their sister, or they inherit a kind of stress response where they might turn to addiction. Like, I don't really think of it, even if I do think there's a piece that's, quote, inherited, I don't think that makes it a disorder or a dysfunction. I think it's, you know, like, I am totally happy to say I came into this world as a sensitive kid. I totally believe I inherited a sensitive disposition. And, you know, I'm sensitive to chemicals. I'm sensitive to foods. I'm sensitive to other people's emotions. I can feel what everybody else in the room is feeling and tell them and they'll tell me I'm right. You know, like, I am very sensitive. And that's part of my huge gift. And it's part of what makes my life really difficult. And then I had all these factors that, you know, from like environmental toxins that existed, concrete traumas that happened, on and on. I had a lot of factors that if there's something in me that was going to turn on and turn into the extreme response that gets called bipolar in our culture, I had all the factors that would make it likely I would go that direction given the sensitivity I brought into the world and who my family was. I like that image of sensitivity because, you know, being more sensitive isn't necessarily weakness or greater vulnerability. It just means that you, it's a diversity thing. It's like, well, you're more, you're more sensitive, so different kinds of situations, you know, you're going to respond to them differently than other people. But sensitivity is an incredible asset and a positive thing in, in other situations totally and it's not i don't want to privilege it over other things like i am so grateful for the super stable out people out there who like build bridges and make public transit run you know and keep our country going if america's hospitals relied on me they would be falling apart i'm really grateful but they'd have great psych wards Jax. <laughs> they would which wouldn't be called psych wards they'd be full of like art and plants and fascinating <laughs> people yeah exactly and Jax, i love that you are so out in your queerness and your identity, because I think this often isn't something we talk about in the context of so-called mental health, that sex becomes sort of a taboo that we're not even really sort of recognizing that it, it exists. So that's been a really important part of, of your message and your leadership for me, I think. Yeah, thanks. It's good to hear that. I mean, I feel like it's something that I haven't talked about very much historically in Icarus. Sasha and I joke sometimes that we've never written anything about relationships in Icarus Project literature. 
And so it's interesting because this new book of mine that's coming out, there's a lot of sex in the book, which wasn't intentional. It was just one of the things fascinating me to write about. And I guess, you know, part of why I want to talk about it is I think that for me, a big part of mental unhealth, of mental dis-ease, is having these huge, vibrant parts of myself that I felt like I needed to hide. You know, I'm reading tomorrow at this event called Fierce Hunger. I'm someone who's a very carnal and sexual being, and it's just a big piece of me. Coming into a place where I can just be real about that and explore it and write about it. And, you know, I think that sex is really a very sacred force. When people are able to be in it and embodied and respectful and present in the history of humanity, sex can be a force of a lot of violence and a lot of destruction, particularly in the hands of men misusing their sexual powers. And sex can be a force of great healing and great connection to the divine. And for me, it's been both. Like my book goes into sexual trauma and it also goes into sexual sexual healing. It sounds so cheesy because of the Marvin Gaye song, but... But that's a great song. Right, and it's a great song. So just reclaiming that power and talking about it and talking about what it's like to be in those questions. I remember the early days of the Freedom Center and I would go to these sort of mental health kind of events and we would never go to bars and we would never, if you were at a restaurant with someone, no one would ever order a beer. And I think maybe that culture has changed a little bit that yes, there are definitely people who they don't, they're not going to go to bars. They don't want to be at a dinner with, uh, with someone who's drinking because that's part of their recovery process. And we need to respect that, but we shouldn't let that turn it into a complete repression and a kind of like a limiting of everyone. And I think that there might be a parallel with sexuality and being open about sex and some of the things that you write about in your poetry. I mean, there's certainly many people who are maybe sexual abuse or sexual trauma survivors who really need to stay away from something that that's going to be that strong or that's explicit. But that doesn't mean that the entire movement of mental health or the entire communities that we're creating have to somehow recreate the taboo all over again. Yeah, and I think it's part of where, you know, part of the Icarus Project's power has come from its roots in DIY or do-it-yourself community where, you know, from our particular subculture where a lot of us came out of who were core organizers, subculture of activism and self-publishing and make things happen and do things collectively of just like, if it's not out there, create it. If you think it's important, talk about it. If you want to write about it and no one else is going to publish it, then publish it yourself. You know, or if you want it on the internet so people can find out, make yourself a website, like put these things out into the world. And it's also, I feel really lucky that I've gotten to spend a chunk of my adult life in the Bay Area where there's a lot of permission to talk about sex, to talk about sex, drugs, life, whatever it is, and to put it out there and to find other people who want to talk about it too. It's been one of the reasons I moved here was to have the freedom to really explore all these different parts of myself and with other people who were willing to talk out loud about them. And I think ironically, that's what happens when we don't talk about these things. It gets even more dangerous. That's actually abuse tends to more likely to be happening in environments where it isn't talked about. It sort of parallels the issue with coming off medications. People are more likely to get into trouble coming off medications if they're living in communities and situations where no one is actually talking about it, having an honest discussion because there's so much fear about it. And again, it's almost like in-between land is kind of like something that we don't go into because we're afraid. We think that we're safer with certainty, but actually that makes things more dangerous for us. So, Jax, we don't have much more time in the interview. Do you want to read one more of your of your po- poems before we say goodbye? Yeah, I do. Um, I'm going to read a poem called The Right Words. I'll just read it instead of telling you what it's about. Okay. The Right Words. It's the day after Christmas, and I'm on my way home from a threesome. The glory in my surrendered hips is quickly being replaced by a familiar smoking shame. 
The winter's first snow has just begun to fall and I am driving through a raw gray world, half dream, half shine, brick buildings softened slightly, and everything obscured like my body I have floated partway out of. My eyes that are suddenly a little too bright, a little too focused. My heart tight in its cage as I drive down Atlantic Avenue, I search for the words the terrified deer in my chest needs to hear to move on and after making it too complicated it turns out to be so simple i love you survivor body anxious and numb i still love you you're doing such a good job after enough repetitions my breath settles into my thighs and she lowers her gaze bounds back into the woods wow wonderful Jax, how can people get in touch with you and find out more about your work and see some of your artwork and also buy copies of your new book, In Between Land? The way to find out more about me and my work in the book is to go to my website, which is www.redwingedjaxbird.net. It's like redwing blackbird, but redwingedjaxbird.net. You can also Google my name. It comes right up. And to find out more about the tour that we're doing this spring, go to The Icarus Project, which is www.theicarusproject.net. Icarus is I-C-A-R-U-S. And you can contact me through my website. You can send me emails through that and everything. Well, Jax, it's really an honor to know you and have the chance to work with you closely over the years. You're an incredible inspiration, and it's been great to have you on Madness Radio. Thanks so much, Will. It's been great to be here. You've been listening to an interview with Jax McNamara. Jax is a genderqueer writer and artist and healer based in the Bay Area. Jax is the co-founder of the Icarus Project and the subject of the documentary film Crooked Beauty and has just published a new book of poetry, In Between Land. That's all the time we have on Madness Radio. Thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to Madness Radio, Voices and Visions from Outside Mental Health, co-sponsored by the Icarus Project, Portland Hearing Voices, and Freedom Center. Madness Radio is hosted by Will Hall and producer is Leah Harris. Madness Radio is based at KBOO in Oregon and can be heard on FM stations on the Pacifica Radio Network. Listen on the internet at madnessradio.net and on iTunes. Contact us at radio at madnessradio.net.